The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This evening, I want to talk about the Dharma of grief. The last three weeks, we've talked about greed, hatred, and delusion. And each of these has to do with wanting things, <clears throat> wanting things to be different than they are, wanting things to be different than they are some way, and how we come to grips with that wanting that we have, wanting things to be, well, not quite the way they are. And because of, I myself have experienced a lot of grief in the last year, and the last week, and because friends of mine have been talking about grief, I thought maybe this would be a good time to explore it. Grief, grief has a lot of features to it. It's related to the, the problem of impermanence. You know, we, we all kind of buy into, we know things change. Impermanence is a quality of life. Things do not stay the same they are they, as they have been. We get it. And basically, it's unsatisfactory. <laughs> I mean, this, this is the key. I mean, you know, if we don't get what we want, it doesn't feel good, right? But more than that, I would like to speak out in defense of grief. I think we think too much about if I'm feeling bad about something, it's because I'm clinging to something and I should let go of it. But grief actually is a very human, real, totally acceptable, common response to loss. Loss, all kinds of loss. You know, the word for impermanence is anicca, and the, the A means not, and nietzsche means constant, permanent, unchanging. We experience loss when things change, sometimes expectantly, sometimes unexpectedly, and it jolts us. It strikes us. We physically feel loss. It's really happening. It's not in our heads. It's not a failing. So what is loss? There are all kinds of things that come into this, this category. Something that we saw as ours is no longer. A person who was always here, is no longer here. A pet that we've been part companions with for years is no longer here. A solution we had has been disproven. Something precious has been misplaced or broken or stolen. Something beautiful has become ugly Oh no, my favorite, you've just spilled ink on it. 
Something new and young has become old and tattered. Something vibrant has deadened. Excitement has become boredom. Good health has declined into infirmity. A good reputation is sullied. Friends and family move away. We can no longer drive. Our new car gets a dent. We no longer remember names, faces, causes. We suffer slipping into Alzheimer's. We watch a loved one slipping into Alzheimer's. We get fired, laid off. We get demoted. Our computer crashes in the middle of a deadline. We spill coffee all over the front of the shirt just before the big meeting. Our investments fail, our houses burn down, our insurance is canceled, our business fails. A loss of innocence, optimism, loss of limbs in the violence of a war, loss of an election. It's about things changing in a way that we don't want. They change and they're just gone. It's not like it's incremental. It's just gone. Loss is just, suddenly it's no longer with you. Something familiar and depended upon is just not true. What? How can this be? There's a a short poem by Jane Hirschfeld called One Sand Grain Among the Others in a Winter Wind. I wake with my hand held over the place of grief in my body. Depend on nothing, the voice advises, but even that is useless. My ears are useless, my familiar and intimate tongue. My protecting hand is useless that wants to hold the single leaf to the tree and say, not this one, this one will be saved. We don't want to give up when we lose. We, we don't want to say it's okay. It isn't okay. <laughs> this is the way it feels. It's not okay. There's, there's a bleakness in front of you. Oh, everything seems washed out, harsh, edgy. There's fear, fear of the known, fear of the unknown, and it's there. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen now. I'm sure what's going to happen, and it's not good. Especially at our most vulnerable, we yearn for stability and control. So we go out and we adopt an idea and say, this is true. I've lost this, but this is true. 
I'm good in a crisis, or I'm not good in a crisis, or I'm a good Buddhist, it's not going to matter to me, or I'm lost, I'm really lost, and I can't, I'll never be found. It'll never get better. We adopt something and we hold on to it very strongly because we need stability when everything is washed out under our feet. It doesn't help to pretend that it's not true. It doesn't help. We have expectations. I should be able to deal with this. I should be able to deal with this. So this, uh, this summer, I moved. I moved from a place I truly loved, uh, a rural place out in West Marin by Point Reyes National Seashore. And um, I grieved. I grieved leaving there. I moved to Menlo Park, to a, a condo in Menlo Park. And it took me a while to figure out what was going on, to realize that, that I was grieving things and what they actually were. So I missed the light. The house, the house had two-story windows. The house was all windows, and it was gorgeous. And while I had near neighbors, I couldn't see them from the house. I had rituals. I would get up in the morning, and I would, the first thing I would do is check whether the fog was in the trees or not. I became friends with those trees. It was a ritual for me to go through that. I watched the sun move across the sky through the year. It would come up, and I could literally see it move south to north, north to south, with the changing seasons of the year. I was so attached to... Attached has a meaning, a, a kind of Buddhist meaning that we use. So I'm going to say I was connected to the earth. I was really connected to the earth. And I didn't appreciate when I moved how much I was going to miss that connection. That, that very thing that I had incorporated into the rituals of my life. They're rituals that made me feel safe. But, you know, I voluntarily moved. I can't very well grieve now because, you know, I should be able to just let go of that. It was an integral part of every day, just the being in that place. And I had walked away from it, and then I expected myself not to care. We care. It doesn't mean that I can never be happy if I don't have that. In fact, I've kind of moved through that grieving process, and it, it, once I understood what it was, once I understood that it was a matter of a change in my rituals, a, 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 a loss of safety, once I could see it, it had something to do with my safety issues, I was able to say, oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's what's going on. But I had to go through the grief before I could see what was going on. Pushing it away, I was embarrassed. 
embarrassed to be grieving. <laughs> okay, nice to notice the embarrassment, but the truth is I had to actually feel the loss and the grieving that loss before I could move on. I had to not pretend it was not there. A friend of mine was talking about fears that he has that make him sad for, for what he sees ahead. You know, he's like me, is aging. And he's, he said, you know, I know I shouldn't cling to life. I shouldn't cling to, to, uh, to the people in my life. And he's mourning leaving the people in his life. And he says, I know I shouldn't cling. I, how do I let go? Well, the first thing you have to do is feel that you are grieving the potential loss of people important to you. You have to not pretend that it's not happening. You have to see it and say, oh, this is what's happening. And then you can do something with that. Then you can, can understand the grief, but, but telling yourself, I shouldn't be clinging, doesn't help. It just doesn't help. Another message we send ourselves is it's been long enough. There's an appropriate length of time for grieving. Well, that doesn't work either. Because grief isn't a thing. It's a process. And every, set, every person who has experienced any kind of loss, loss of a husband, loss of a mother, loss of anything that gives you a, a, a jolt to your system, turns out what you do is you add it into all those old griefs you're also carrying around. And you fall into a, a complete deep well of grief that all of the griefs that you've ever experienced are contributing to. And then it kind of eases, and then it comes back. And it kind of eases, and it comes back. This is the nature of grief. Because it comes, and you, you see it, and you experience it, and you, if you move it through your body. And then you let your guard down, and it's back. Because, because we store these things in our, in our bodies. There is a physical thing that happens when we are struck by loss. And it's there. Oh. And then there's the thing, I have to do something about it. I should manage my grief. I should manage my grief. I should, I should do something to make it better. I should adopt more optimistic attitudes. I should say, oh, it'll get better. In addition to our own grief, there's, the, there's being with other people's grief. And, and you don't want to see them hurting. And you want them to be better. And you say, oh, please, cheer up. Come on, cheer up. It'll get better. But this isn't actually useful. It's another complaint. You're not doing this right. Not only are you sad, but you're not being sad right. You're not going through it at the right rate. You should, we know it's going to take some time, so you should be actively getting rid of your grief. It actually doesn't even make sense. 
But we do that. We do that because we don't want people to be in pain. And we don't want to be in pain. But somehow, it turns out that the only way to deal with grief is to go through it. And what I'm experiencing is not the same thing as what you experience. Each of us has our unique set of conditions, the reasons that things are important to me, the reasons that things are important to you. They may have to do with some um, menial wanting, not be able to get over wanting. Or they may be symbolic of something really deep in your psyche. How do you know? How does someone else know for sure? So instead, we have reactions to our grief. We have outrage, anger at injustice, righteousness, sometimes sadness, guilt. Guilt. This is one of my favorites. This is my fault. If I were a better person, I wouldn't be so sad. If I were a better person, my husband would not have left me. Uh, So I I had a husband leave me for another woman. Uh, It was a long time ago. And I was torn apart with guilt. What should I have done differently? As if his leaving was my fault. It took me a really long time to figure out that he actually left me because of him and not because of me. Because obviously it was pretty personal for me, but it wasn't me. It was something he needed that I couldn't give him, that I couldn't do. So I felt guilty and bereaved bereft. And it was so long ago now, I hardly remember it. But it lasted a long time. And it lasted a long time partly because I had been so reluctant to actually become vulnerable to someone. And I finally totally gave over myself to this person, and then he rejected me. Oh! Crushing, 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 crushing. It took me a long time to be willing to be vulnerable again. These things are not trivial. They are things that we work our way through. Sometimes we adopt a replacement strategy. Um... Well, I'm just going to sit down with this bottle of wine and drink it until I can't see this anymore. Or we just don't, we agree we're not going to see it. This, this is so unbelievable. This cannot be true. I'm just, I don't believe it. And I pretend it's not happening. I'm not losing this. I haven't lost that. Or I adopt distraction. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to go to the movies. Or I'm going to play solitaire for the rest of my life. We find coping strategies instead of allowing it to be true. 
Mostly we think we have to do something. And the irony of that is essentially we're feeling out of control. Out of control. And if the loss is great enough, we're immobilized. Totally immobilized. Can't do anything. Can't feel anything. There's a, there, there, there's a wailing in the darkness. I once met a neighbor because I was, I was so upset. I was in the house all by myself and I just started screaming at the top of my lungs and she came over thinking somebody was killing me. Right? And it was the opening of a, of a good friendship, but it basically was ah, that, that primal, this can't be true kind of feeling. We're teetering on the edge of violence and despair. This is so unjust, so unjust. And it will always be this way. And it'll never improve. These are are natural thoughts, but they're just thoughts. They don't have to be true. But it is part of the grieving process. We want to be adults and find ourselves childlike. Childlike. Do not shy away from what's happening. It is happening. See it, believe it. This sucks. See it. Notice how you're feeling. Don't ask your experience to be other than it is. That doesn't mean that you have to get down and roll around in it on the floor. You don't have to drop yourself down into the well of grief and stay there. But you have to, you have to see when it's present. You have to say, oh, oh, this is really happening. When we fall into the well of grief, try not to drown. That's enough. It's enough. You don't have to be better than you are. We don't have to wish it away and we don't have to add to it. You know, uh, another thing that, that happened in my life recently, well, almost a year ago, is my husband had a minor stroke. And at the time, I experienced this as uh, uh, truly devastating. Now, he's, he's pretty much totally recovered. We've been very, very fortunate. But the damage to my sense of this is how things are was, was very great. I was hypervigilant. The poor man could do nothing before me. I was making sure everything was safe around him, like putting bumpers around him, you know? I've finally gotten over that. He's very happy. (laughs) But the thought of losing him, so even prior to loss, had me rushing off into this place. Oh, my God, look what could happen. Knowing that things can change, how do we deal with something that changes Suddenly, that changes everything. Just like that, it's all different. 
we thought that life was pro- progressing this way, and it isn't all of a sudden. It's taken a right turn or a 180-degree turn, and it's not what we expect. This is very dislocating. We can say, oh, this is what it feels like. Oh, how does it feel? One of the virtues of not facing away from grief is actually noticing what is it you feel. There's a hollowness. It feels like a body blow. You know, when, one of the things I like doing is watching waves on a beach. And they come in and they come, they come in and they go back. And they're very constant and different every time. It's stunning to watch. I love the ocean. It seems like such a vast thing. It absorbs everything. And yet the waves rush up. They rush back. They're never the same. They're extremely powerful. And they have no substance. They're not really a thing. You know, the water swooshes in and the water swooshes out. And the wave is just the movement in the water, the the circular movement in the water. There's a process, a continuous process of becoming. This is also true. You know, there is a condition in impermanence where everything is changing. And a corollary to that is things are always becoming. Things are always becoming. They're becoming the next thing. This is what's true now. And we don't actually know what they're becoming. We don't know what the next moment is going to be. Despite our total conviction that we know what the next moment is going to be, we don't. They're becoming something else all the time. So what's a, what's a mourner to do? <laughs> okay? We figure out we're in the midst of this grief. Now what do I do with it? So I was speaking with someone earlier this week who was, um, he's a, an American living in London. And uh, this was the day after the election, and he had worked very hard. He was actually making calls from London to people trying to to get out the vote. And he was crushed. And he said, How, what do I do? He said, I feel, uh, what was the phrase? It was wonderful. Um, uh, emotional congestion. He said, nothing will move through me. It's just stuck. I'm stuck here. And I said, well, you take the first step and you say, I'm here. And that's enough. I'm here. I wake up in the morning and say, I'm here. I don't have to be any way other than I am, but I'm still here. It's the same movement when we're meditating and we find that our mind has gone off and we come back to the breath, we can say, oh, I'm lost. Oh, I'm lost again. Or we can say, I'm back. I'm here. That affirmation of this moment 
right here, I'm here for this moment, is a very reinforcing, honest assessment of what we know. I'm here. And it's enough. I'm here. Oh, and I stand up, and I'm still here. The world has not ended. I haven't solved any problems, but I'm still here. It isn't like setting goals. Well, by the end of the week, I'm going to be over this and I'm going to have a plan. That's for the strong and confident. Someone in grief is not feeling strong and confident. They may have an inner confidence that comes from the ability to land in this moment, though, of reinforcing I'm here that is, generates an inner confidence. At least I'm here. At least I'm showing up. I'm here. That congested emotion thing is, is a shock. You know, loss, loss often has a shock associated with it. There was, um, uh, I'm going to read a quote, but this was from uh, Guy Newland, who wrote a book called A Buddhist Grief Observed. And he talked about uh, his wife uh, having cancer and eventually dying of cancer and how he dealt with it. So here's one thing he said. Shock doesn't have to involve surprise. It took me months to understand. It's like someone informing you that he's going to punch you in the head and then punching you in the head. You're not surprised, but you do have a concussion. You know, even when we see something coming, that doesn't mean we are unaffected by it. Even though I chose to move, it doesn't mean I was unaffected by it. The fact that I wasn't looking at that because I was too busy packing and making arrangements and planning doesn't mean I was unaffected by that. Many things happen in our lives that we're not looking at or looking for. It doesn't have to involve surprise it can still be devastating. There is a kind of uh, desensitization that can happen. You know, we we think when we're in grief that we're really... uh, uh, It's easy, easy to offend us, easy to hurt us, easy to get off track. But what often happens is we actually don't feel anything. It's, it's the kind of stasis that comes around and it's total immobility. There's a numbness. There's an inability to experience pleasure. An inability. We feel guilty if we're not sad, even for a moment. It doesn't feel like, you know, it's living up to, it's not respecting the sorrow, the loss. In the absence of what we have lost, it's useful to notice what you're really missing. You know, sort of like when, when we're sitting and we develop a pain in the knee, we say, I have a pain in the knee. 
And, and then we, we kind of treat it like it's something that's solid. And the truth is, and, you know, it seems like it's, it's very real, but pain is an idea, it's a concept. It's, it's something that we name for the warning that our body gives us that something might need attention. But what we're actually feeling is the stabbing and the pulling and the pressure and the stretching. That's what we're feeling. So it can be very useful to pay attention not to what you're thinking about the loss, but what is it that you've lost? What is it that you've lost? What is it that is causing the pain, really? Instead of abstracting it, what is the loss? One of the things I realized when Uh, I went through the divorce of my husband leaving me, was that one of the things I really, really missed was that we sat every morning and talked over coffee. And I really missed that piece of intimacy almost as much as anything. And so what I would do is go down to a neighborhood coffee shop to get my coffee. And I'd sit at a table drinking my coffee. Now, I never talked to anybody, not even the person who made the coffee, but I felt I was part of a community. I was part of something. I wasn't alone for my morning cup of coffee. It was something I realized I missed. I missed intimacy. Somebody who paid attention to what was going on with me every day. That's what I missed. Those two things. The morning coffee ritual and the intimacy of someone who paid attention to what happened to me every day. It was really important to see that and not the concept of, I've been abandoned for another woman. That was true, but that's not actually what I lost. It's really important to see. We can see intimacy in the other people we love. When we're experiencing loss, it can be really valuable to find out what you're connected to. Sometimes we don't pay that much attention to it. And it's a surprise. Sometimes it's a real surprise. What are you connected to? How do you get the community of others? You know, one of the worst things that you can do for someone who's grieving is say, I know just how you feel. Oh, no, you don't. That's the immediate response of anyone. And we don't. Nobody can know how you feel. Nobody has access to all of the conditions that are given rise, have given rise to this moment, this experience. But it does help if you talk to somebody that you think has had a similar experience. Not the same. So somebody says, how is it with you? Not, I know how it is with you. But how is it with you? Totally different. Open as opposed to, I know what's true about you. Shutting things down. The truth is, nobody knows how they will die. Nobody knows how they're going to react to any loss. 
We don't know when death will take us. We don't know how it's going to be. We don't know when it's going to arrive. That's the nature of the unexpected. We don't know where loss is going to come from. So what do we do? We develop resilience. We develop resilience. Not after it's happened, not a good time. (laughs) But beforehand, we can develop the habit of saying, you know, that wasn't so good, but it wasn't so bad. I was talking to someone this morning who is taking the online uh, intro to mindfulness meditation course. She's a a relatively young woman, uh, uh, and she was, uh, she said to me, we were talking about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and she said, well, you know, you're not supposed to enjoy stuff. I said, what? You know, I personally think enjoying stuff is a good idea. She said, well, you know, if it's pleasant, you should, you should ignore it. I said, no. If it's pleasant, you should say, wow, that's great. What's, what you don't want to do is hold on to it and say, I'm not going to let it go. But for God's sake... If a fairy comes and sprinkles fairy dust, accept it. (laughs) This is okay. This is okay. Don't ask somebody who's grieving to see the good side. Don't say, oh, you're going to say that someday you're going to say this is the best thing that happened to you. Not useful. You may eventually say that about the condition. But it is painful in the process. It is painful in the process. We, we need to be tender with our wounds. We don't have to check and make sure it still hurts. Be tender. Be tender with ourselves. Oh, this was a blow. This is a blow. We need to keep the heart soft in the midst of grief. Keep the heart soft, keep the heart open. Be tender. In the face of hatred, adopt non-hatred. When we lose, when we lose and we feel that there is an injustice, There's a tendency to anger and resentment and ill will. Revenge fantasies abide. Let go of that. Let go of that. It's difficult to engender imagination and wonder and awe and invention Anything that's new requires a kind of generative energy. And it's hard to get that when you're sunk. That's why it's so important to give attention to the heart. Because the heart is the place from which we can generate a new view, a new perspective, a new way of seeing. 
It's from the heart that we can move forward. The wounded, sad, broken heart. It gives way to generous impulses. This friend that I mentioned earlier who has said he had been consumed by grieving and, didn't, and felt bad about it found that when he gave to someone, the grieving disappeared. When he was, doing in the, when he was in the middle of a generous act, it just wasn't present. Because he was opening his heart, he couldn't hold it closed. Open the heart to community, to family. Something that feeds the heart is what's needed. Sylvia Borstein refers to the, uh, the heart song, knowing your heart song. In the midst of grief, you can still notice what makes your heart sing. What, what provides comfort? Where do you feel most at ease, most still? When is there energy rising? Notice it. It doesn't stay. Notice it. Today I was uh, on Stanford campus. I went to hear David White give an address. David is a a poet, for those of you who might know him. Uh, And this is he's been a favorite poet of mine for some time. And I'd never heard him speak before. And he was uh, uh, an opening speaker for a conference, a five-day thing they have there on uh, contemplation by design is the name of the the program, and it's, yeah, so, so he was speaking, and he was, he spoke about the importance of going in to come out, that the, the generative portion of your life only happens if you're, if you're able to stay with the deep, dark part, and he, to, he told a story about uh, a time he was with David Stendhal Rust, who is a Benedictine monk. And uh, it was when David was trying to decide whether he should uh, become a poet instead of a marine biologist. (laughs) He had become disenchanted with his marine biology, and he wanted to write poetry, and he couldn't decide what to do, and he was totally exhausted. And Stendhal Ross said to him, David, the antidote to exhaustion is not rest. It is wholeheartedness. The antidote to exhaustion is not rest. It is wholeheartedness. This is, in fact, why it's so important to be present for your own grief. Because it is the whole of your your experience and the heart-mind that allows you to find the next new way of being in the world. So, deciding here which direction I'm going to go. It's about a quarter to nine. So, 
I would like to know, uh, of the people here, whether you would like to consider the recent election or not. Yes, we have a yes. Other people? Some people want it to go away, so I don't want to impose. Okay, so I don't want to actually talk about what happened, but I want to talk about the grief of loss. All right? Is that okay with people? All right. So, so one thing that is important is finding a way to locate intention in the midst of this cannot be true. This cannot be true. How can this be true? The the devastation can be great. I spoke to a woman, a black woman, who is middle-aged, looking for a job. She lives in the South. And uh, she was working the polls on Tuesday. And I spoke with her on Wednesday. She's been unable to find a job. She's living in a difficult relationship and can't afford to leave it. She is terrified of what she sees as a dangerous time to be a black woman in the South. And she was trying her best to be optimistic. And we, we spoke about the dangers of being resentful and combative and angry. And what do you do about that? And we talked about how hatred curdles inside you. It actually hurts. It sort of twists you up and it closes you down and you cave in and you feel contracted when you're angry about something. Even the, the, the clenching of the jaw, you know, right away everything kind of closes in. And somehow you have to be present for what is just not acceptable. And know that it's not acceptable to you and still say, I am here. I am here. There is a... I'm going to read this to you. This is from the Dhammapada, and it is uh, chapter 15 called Happiness. Uh, So happily we live without hate among those who hate. Among people who hate, we live without hate. Uh, So happily we live without misery among those in misery. Among people in misery, we live without misery. Ah, so happily we live without ambition among those with ambition. Among people who are ambitious, we live without ambition. Ah, so happily we live, we who have no attachments. We shall feast on joy as do the radiant gods. Victory gives birth to hate. 
the defeated sleep in anguish. Giving up both victory and defeat, those who have attained peace sleep happily. There is no fire like lust, no more misfortune like hate, no suffering like the aggregates, and no happiness higher than peace. Victory gives birth to hate. You know, I listened to someone on the television last night gloating, gloating, and still and still talking about those wretched other people. Having won. And I thought, wow. That carries over that, that the energy of not liking, of other, those people are other. And lose, totally losing sight of the fact that we all just want to be happy. We all just want to be happy. Even those people that we can't understand who think differently than we do. They just want to be happy. That's, that's sort of amazing. You know, these people that we've painted horns on and given a pitchfork to, just like us, want to be happy. That, that's almost as hard as believing you lost. <laughs> and yet it's true. And yet it's true. Defeat gives rise to resentments, a sense of injustice, anger, blame. It must be someone's fault. This shouldn't be true. This shouldn't be happening. And yet it's true. That's the hardest part. When you lose something that you fought so hard for, believed so completely in, it's just devastating to have to say, it's not true. This is now what is true. Oh. Oh. This is what it is. How striking. Noticing the, the not wanting to believe that it's true. Waking up the morning after and thinking, oh, it was probably just a dream. Nah, they, they've recounted and now it's different. No, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. When we lose, it's as if the extent of the loss is complete. Everything is lost. We're not seeing it clearly. In the pain of loss, it's everything. But it's not everything, it's just that. It's not more than it is. It is what it is, but it's not more than it is. All is not lost. All is not there. It's not one giant, everything is bad. There, we don't know what's going to happen next. There could even be something good. Hard to think that way. Hard to consider it. There may be something good that happens. We can't see the event as part of becoming. It's too hard. But try. It's becoming something else. 
Everything is always becoming something else. We don't move on. We're stuck. We cling to what we, is not true in the face of the horror of the truth. We have not my president demonstrations going on. When I was at Stanford, it was interesting, the woman who was hosting the event today said, well, this is the day after 11-9. It feels like the day after 9-11. And I thought, wow, she is really struck. She is really struck. This is pain. We want to correct the outcome, but what is done cannot be undone. What is done cannot be undone. Laws can be amended. Regulations can be rescinded. Those who lost are in fear. Just do not succumb to hate. Uh, Wes Nisker is somebody that many of you have probably heard of. He's a, a local Dharma teacher from Spirit Rock. He's been around for a while. He helped find, found Spirit Rock. And in his youth, he worked for a rock and roll radio station. And what he did was tell the news. And he would do his little news thing, and he'd have music. And at the end of every broadcast, he said, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. If you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. Not bad. We don't have to fall into the well of grief and drown. Find your intention. Live your intention. Live your intention. Recognize grief, the grief of loss, and then take the first step and come into this moment Know your intention and live your intention. Go into the darkness and rediscover what's there. Be open to a new view. Keep your heart open. The Buddha's last words were, Be diligent. Be diligent. Strive on untiringly, he said. Ah, okay. The next step. What is the next step? What does it take to keep on? What does it take? It speaks to persistence, determination, and knowing your heart. This is true for any kind of grief. You keep showing up. So, in honor of Mr. White, he today recited one of my favorite poems, and I wish I had his deep Irish brogue to read this to you with, but you're just going to have to do with me. This poem is called Sweet Darkness. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. 
There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. May peace be your guide and your outcome. Thank you very much. I've spoken all the way to 9 o'clock, so we have to stop. If people would like to say something, I can hang around for a while. Thank you, Randy, if you can shut it off.